Hi, Bert Alcorn here, lead pastor of Anthem Ventura. You're listening to the Anthem Ventura podcast. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen and track with our teachings. The sermon you're about to hear has been prayed and labored over, and we really do hope you find this useful and an aid of your discipleship to Jesus. If you'd like to learn a little bit more about Anthem, visit us online at anthemventura.org, or you can download our mobile app from the iTunes or Google Play App Store. Enjoy the next hour or so. We have prayed that God would use it in profound ways in the lives of anyone that may hear it. Thanks so much. I'm excited to be in Matthew chapter 14 with you. Uh, And so as is my custom a little bit, I want to help us understand where we are in the book of Matthew. And so Matthew writes primarily to who as an audience? Jews. Well done. Okay, Jewish people is his primary audience. So Matthew writes this gospel or an account, a biography of Jesus's life. And we have four of them in the New Testament and each one have a bit of a different focus or intent to them. And so Matthew's focus and intent is to write to largely a Jewish audience to prove that Jesus is who? the Messiah, right? Or in parentheses, the one they've been waiting for, for all these thousands of years. And so Matthew does something really interesting for the first couple of chapters, is he lays out stuff like a genealogy and a birth narrative in a way that would have been checking off all these checkboxes that the average Jew would have had in their mind about the coming Messiah. So there's lots of phrases like, this was done to fulfill what this prophet said, or this was done to fulfill what that prophet said. And so the layout to us feels like a very strange way to start the book, but it would have been extremely compelling for Matthew's audience. And so the genealogy, his birth account, his baptism, all of that stuff helps set the stage that this is Jesus, the promised Messiah, and we should listen to what he has to say, which takes us right into chapter four, the next part where Jesus is announcing his kingdom. And it's here in this segment, chapters five, six, seven, in particular, that we have Jesus's first and biggest block of teaching which is known commonly as what? Anyone know? Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, so it starts with the Beatitudes and is part of this longer sermon basically on a hillside where Jesus is teaching people about what it means to be a part of the kingdom. And at the very end of chapter 4, Matthew gives us a clue of who is in the audience in that particular moment. And there are two types of people that Matthew calls out as hearing the Sermon on the Mount. Who are those two groups of people? disciples and the crowds, right? So the disciples, those who've said yes to Jesus and are following him. And to them, the Sermon on the Mount is a manifesto of life in the kingdom. It's really this line in the sand. It's this calling to live who they are and who they've been made to be. For the crowds that are listening, it is a standing invitation to anyone and everyone to join this kingdom of God, this very upside down kingdom of God. And so that teaching concludes, and it concludes with a whole series of stories about Jesus healing people and casting out demons. And so rather than announcing the kingdom of God, Jesus is demonstrating the kingdom of God in the everyday lives of regular people. And we're seeing that Jesus has authority over things like a storm, over the demonic, over whatever else, sickness in people. And we're seeing his power and authority come to bear. And it ends with another block of teaching where Jesus is commissioning and sending out his disciples to do what? What is he sending out his disciples to do? Anyone know? Teach. 
the same thing Jesus has been doing. And so it's there, yeah, teach, but not only teach, to heal people, to cast out demons, to bring the kingdom into the lives of people. And so it's there we get our first glimpse that a disciple is meant to be with Jesus, be like Jesus, and do what he did. And so Jesus is an example for how to live in the kingdom of God. And then starting in chapter 11, chapters 11, 12, and 13, Matthew collects a bunch of stories that help us understand how people are responding to Jesus. So we have people are responding positively, like people who are getting healed and demons cast out, like they're super stoked that Jesus is the Messiah and he has power over demons and sickness, right? We have people who are responding a little bit more neutral. So like John the Baptist sends his disciples to go check out Jesus and, and question, are you really the Messiah? And then we have people that are responding negatively, like who? Who responds negatively to the mission and ministry of Jesus? Yeah, Pharisees, scribes, those kind of in the religious elite, or those with power who have power to lose with the coming of this new king. And so chapters 11 and 12 are all about how people are responding to Jesus. And then in chapter 13, we have these parables that Matthew collects as a, that serve as a commentary on how people have been responding. So we have lots of parables that say things like, the kingdom of God is like this or like that. And what we find in that moment is Jesus' teaching go from crystal clear about who he is and what his kingdom is about to incredibly confusing and mind-boggling parables. And he ends some of these parables saying, those who have ears, let them hear. And Jesus is intentionally teaching in a cryptic way. And so the tone of Jesus' teachings to the crowds change. And where we find ourselves today is the start of a new section or a new movement in Matthew, chapters 14 through 20. And this section explores all these different expectations people have about the Messiah and how he confronts them and often how he disappoints some of their expectations of who and what the Messiah should be. So we're going to start right at the beginning of Matthew chapter 14. I hope that helped just set the context and the framework for where we are in the book. It's a big book. It can be easy to get lost, especially in the narrative portions. And so just head to our website if you want extra resources. We put a bunch of stuff up there, anthemventura.org slash Matthew, where you can go watch some videos. You can look at some timelines, some maps, stuff like that to really help you understand where we're at. But hopefully these first couple of minutes just kind of set the stage for what's happening in Matthew chapter 14. Uh, before we start reading, very quickly, the last few verses of Matthew 13, Steve taught on that last week. What's happening there? Jesus goes to a unique place. Do you know where Jesus goes in the very last five or six verses of Matthew 13? Yeah, he goes home, right? And what happens when he goes home? Rejected, right? So they hear about all this stuff that's going on, and he starts to do some of that, and they reject him, and he says, okay, that's it. I'm not doing any more miracles. I'm not doing any more signs in my hometown. He sort of does this a little bit. And he's on the move again. And so chapter 14 starts like this. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch, which is an, a common form uh, of, of word for just a ruler. So Herod the ruler uh, heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. 
But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry. But because of his oaths and, the, and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. The day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We only have five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we need your help in understanding this text. And we need your help uh, in seeing how it changes our lives. And so, Holy Spirit, would you speak through me? Would you speak to us? Would we have ears to hear what you are saying to us this evening? Father, would you help me teach and preach in a way that is faithful and honorable to the text and, and faithful to what you are doing uh, in us as a church? Uh, and would we together receive your word? Would we let it shape and change our minds and our hearts? And would we leave and walk out changed because we've encountered you through the story of your son, Jesus? Father, would we ultimately make much of him? Would we worship him? Would we love him more? Would we see him as the Messiah, this long-awaited king that for thousands of years people have waited for? And we can now look back and celebrate and remember that Jesus is the Messiah and he changed history forever. God, would you uh, use this narrative story, would you use this familiar story to a lot of us who have grown up in the church and use it in a fresh new way to remind us of your goodness, your provision, your compassion, and your power. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Fun fact. Our kids' ministry is going through the same passage today. So if parents, if you have kids in there, ask them about what they learned today. They're going through the same passage as we are. Or not the beheading of John. I think that's a little X-rated for the kiddos. But the feeding of the 5,000. So ask your kids when you pick them up what they learned today. Uh, if they tell you John the Baptist was beheaded, they went off script back there. Okay. So I want to start us off with just a little bit of a, something that boggles my mind from time to time. And it's the reality that Jesus is human. I want you guys to think about that for a second. It's something I have a hard time grappling with. Uh, I have a hard time remembering that Jesus was actually a human who walked and lived and breathed and was born and was a baby and was a boy and grew up. I have a hard time grasping that he ascended bodily into heaven and it's to this person whom I pray that I haven't seen or touched or heard with my own hands, eyes, or ears, but he, he's human and he ascended to heaven. 
that he was in his mother's womb for nine months, like me, like you. That he was born a messy, gross, bloody baby, just like me and you. He was a little boy who's jumping around, skipping, probably scraped his knee. Can you imagine Jesus jumping around, being a rambunctious two-year-old? He was a boy who physically grew up, who mentally and perhaps in some incomprehensible way spiritually grew up. He learned to walk, talk, read, write, and pray. He didn't come out of the womb like fully 100% a 30-year-old man. That'd be weird. He came out as a little baby and lived life and most of his life in obscurity. We don't have much of Jesus' Jesus' human life. We get a few snippets of when he was born, a few snippets when he grew up a little bit later and he had this encounter with his parents at the temple. And then we see him come onto the scene when he's baptized by John the Baptist. And there's a lot about his humanness we don't know. Like we don't know what color his hair was. We don't know what color his eyes were. We don't know if he was white, like that picture on the back wall so accurately (laughs) prescribes. We don't know a lot about his humanness, right? But scripture does let us in on some of it, right? We know from the gospels that he walked, sat, sailed, and got hungry, and he got thirsty. We know that he felt tired, so he slept. He wasn't a robot. We know that he spoke and sang and prayed, and we know that he grieved and wept. And ultimately, at the end of this account, he died. All very human things, Jesus is human, and sometimes I have a hard time grasping that, especially as we're reading about all of his incredible, miraculous works and healings and and demons being cast out and and him controlling the storm. I forget. It's easy for me to remember that he is God. It's, It's easy for me to forget that he is also human. And that's why I think Matthew gives us these glimpses of Jesus' humanity, like in our text today, not just his divinity. Because if he wasn't a human, he could not be the Messiah. And that's what really the whole book about, of Matthew is all about, is demonstrating that Jesus is the Messiah. And one of those ways he had to be Messiah was he had to be human. And so what we have here is a very miraculous, divine, uh, supernaturally authoritative moment of Jesus bookended by some very human moments from Jesus. I think that's important for us to understand. And to understand this a little bit more, we're going to take a a deep dive a little bit into what's happening in the first part of this text. So I want to prepare you right up front. We're going to do a little bit of historical work to understand why these first 12 verses are in our Bible. Because I'll explain to you in just a second, they are not chronologically part of the timeline, and it feels like a strange aside for Matthew. And so I want to help set the context for why these are here and how they connect to this, uh, what I would understand is a very familiar Bible story I grew up in Sunday school with, that you probably have heard at least a dozen times if you've spent time in the church or have grown up with Jesus. If you're newer to Jesus or newer to the church, maybe this is like a, wait, what the heck? He just like multiplied all these fishes and loaves? I need to know more about that. We'll get there. But for those of us who've grown up in the church, this is maybe an all too familiar story and it's lost some of its allure and awe. And we just sort of read past it as like, oh yeah, of course he did that. Okay, next story, next story, next story. And we have to take a moment to see how incredible this is and what Jesus is trying to teach us about himself through it. Okay, so first things first, we need to understand who John the Baptist is. 
Okay, he comes on this scene early in the book of Matthew. In what chapter? Does anyone know off the top of your head? Chapter two, almost. Chapter three, so close. Chapter three. Now, what's he doing in chapter three? Yeah, he's baptizing, he's, he's preaching, exactly. So this is in a different gospel where we get a little bit of his early life. But in the book of Matthew, the first time we see him on the scene is at the Jordan River. He's preaching to people to repent, for the kingdom of God is near, right? He's saying, prepare yourselves. And he's known as a forerunner for the Messiah or for Jesus. And we say, guys, ready your hearts. The king is coming and we got to be ready. So repent, turn from your sinful ways. Let's get baptized. Let's make ourselves ready for the coming king. And it's there we have this encounter with Jesus as well, where Jesus approaches him and say, I have to be baptized. And John the Baptist is like, no, 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 you're the Lord. And he's like, no, this is the way it's got to be. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. Go read it if you haven't read it. But uh, that's what happens. And Jesus gets baptized. There's this beautiful moment where we see the Trinity all in one verse or two verses right there. And that's the first time we see John the Baptist in the book of Matthew. The next time we see him is in chapter 4, verse 12, where he is arrested and imprisoned. Right? He's imprisoned, and Jesus withdrew. That's interesting. We're going to come back to that. That's really important. But he's imprisoned, as we find out later in the book of Matthew, because of uh, his critical and vocal nature of Herod, the leader of this particular area. He didn't like what was going on. The next time we see John the Baptist pop up is in chapter 11. So 11, chapter 11, is in the midst of all these stories that Matthew compiles about how people are responding to Jesus. Some are positive, some are negative, some are neutral. And we find that from prison, John the Baptist sends his disciples to go ask Jesus, what's going on? Are you really the Messiah? Are you really the one we've been waiting for? Okay? So that's the next time we see John the Baptist. He wants to make sure Jesus is really the Messiah. We see him again at the very beginning of chapter 14 in sort of an ominous way, right? Where somehow Herod, the Tetrarch, the ruler of this region of Israel, hears about what Jesus is doing and doesn't necessarily think, oh, Jesus, like the, he's the king of the Jews, right? We're not there in this story yet. He doesn't know who Jesus is. He hears about what Jesus is doing and he attributes it to the like resurrected or zombie body of John the Baptist, where he says, something is, is weird. I've heard about all these miraculous works. It's got to be John the Baptist. And then what happens in verse 3, this is really important. What happens in verse 3 is this is a historical flashback. So think of like a 90s sitcom dream sequence. That's sort of what's happening right here in chapter 3. This is not in present time or narrative. Matthew takes us back to help us understand why Herod would say what he said. It says, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead, and this is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. So, okay, so what happens right here is Matthew's telling us that John the Baptist has died. We, this is new information for us. And so Matthew takes us back into the story to understand what happened. And Matthew gives us a bit of the story of what happened here. Herod was the Roman ruler over this area of, of where Jesus was doing his work and ministry. And he was only about 17 years old when he took over for his dad. So Herod, senior, right, his dad was the dude we read about at the beginning of Matthew and Luke, right, who's killing all the babies, who's paranoid about this foretold, pro prophesied king that would come about. This dude dies, and he divides up his kingdom 
And Herod is one of his sons who gets a portion of this kingdom, which is where Jesus was doing his ministry, right? Right around the north of the Sea of Galilee right there. And so Herod rules over this area, and he had John the Baptist arrested and imprisoned because Herod marries his stepbrother's wife. It gets, it's super weird, like Oedipus complex weird stuff is happening in this family. And so they both divorce their spouses. They marry each other. And John the Baptist says, whoa, 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 this is super weird. This is not right. And he's super vocal about it. And because he's a prophet, he has a huge crowd. And so what Herod does is he arrests him. He imprisons him, but he does not kill him. Why does he not kill him? This would have been super common for him to kill him, by the way. This is weird that he did not kill John the Baptist. Why didn't he kill him? Yeah, he's popular. He's a prophet. A.K.A. Herod did not want a riot on his hands, right? So he imprisons him, but he doesn't kill him because he does not want to deal with an uprising from the people. So next, we have this scene of Herod's birthday party. So when we think birthday party, don't think like candles and a cake, a little backyard barbecue or a hang time at the beach or something like this. Herod's parties were legendary drunken orgies, like the epitome of sinfulness, the epitome of an anti-God pagan lifestyle culture, just the celebration of everything that we would look at and say, what is wrong with you? So I want to paint a picture for you of what's happening here in the most debauched gathering where everyone's drunk, everyone's sleeping with each other. And when it came time for the entertainment, they would typically have slave girls come out and dance for people. Uh, And instead, his new wife's daughter, so his stepdaughter, comes out, who would have been 12, 13, or 14 at the time, to perform basically a lap dance. Gross, right? Can we all get on board? This is a gross scene already. Everyone's drunk. People are sleeping with each other. It is a terrible scene, and his stepdaughter comes out to perform an arousing dance for everyone who is in attendance. Not only that, but it is such a sensual dance that Herod, the king, the ruler, offers her anything she wants. He is so excited about what's happening in this dance situation that he gives her one request— And so her mother, hey, happy Mother's Day. We didn't even know this text was going to fall on Mother's Day. Her mother says, ask for John the Baptist's head. That's what I really want. He's going to, if you go out and do this dance, he is going to give you anything you want. So here's the request. Ask for John the Baptist's head on a platter. And so she does the dance. He's super stoked on the dance in a very sexual way. She says, I want the head of John the Baptist. And he is grieved. And he's grieved probably because he knows that's going to be a riot. It's going to be a hard day at the office for him on Monday because of what he did on a Friday night. And so he gets John the Baptist beheaded, brings the head up, and the mom and the daughter are happy, and he's grieved. And that's where we find out how and why John the Baptist died, which is new information for us in the Gospel of Matthew. So we have this disturbing scene. John the Baptist dies. And we find out his disciples take care of the burial and inform Jesus of what's happening. And it's here in verse 13 where the timing gets a little tricky and a lot of uh, really smart people have disagreed on exactly what's linking these two stories here. And it could be one of two things. Uh, It could be that Jesus withdraws because he hears of John the Baptist's death. Or it could be that the reason Jesus withdraws is going back to verse 1 and 2 right, where Herod is now picking up on the ministry of Jesus and is worried that there's some other rabble-rouser out and about healing and claiming to be king or a powerful leader himself. 
So a lot of people have disagreed on why Jesus withdrew, if it's because he is grieved and sad that John the Baptist, who would have been his cousin, remember, and a close ministry friend of his, was beheaded, which would be a justifiable reason to want to withdraw. Or it would have been the heat is starting to ramp up with Herod, and a couple of times already Jesus withdraws because it's not his time yet. He's got more work to do. So we don't know, but regardless, the main point stays the same. Jesus hears about the death. He hears about Herod, wondering who is out and about causing this stir, and he withdraws. He leaves the crowds to go pray and be alone. And in verse 13 and 14 is an incredibly human moment from Jesus, where for whatever reason, whether it's worry about Herod or whether it's grief and sadness from John the Baptist, his response is, I need to be alone. I want to pray. I need to take a day off work, healing and ministering. I need to go be with the Father. And so we have this incredibly human moment from Jesus where he wants to get away and pray. And we're not told where he went, likely somewhere on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, we know, however, what happened when he got there. Let's read in verse 13. When Jesus heard this, that this being either John the Baptist's death or Herod worried about Jesus, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Sounds perfect for some one-on-one -on -one time with the Father. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Okay, so Jesus is doing ministry right along this, this sea right here. And so he hops a boat to find a desolate place where he can be alone. The crowds hear where he's going, and on foot, they go and meet him there, and they're there waiting for him. And Jesus has compassion on them. He saw this crowd that would have killed his one-on-one -on -one time moment, or at least paused it. Because we find in verses 22 and 23, our text from, part of our text for next week, he actually does get that time. And that's the other end of the bookend where Jesus sends the crowds away. He sends the disciples away and he has his moment in solitude with the Father. And so plan A was, I'm gonna get on the boat, I'm gonna get away. And that didn't work. The crowds followed him. So he went to plan B. After he heals everyone, after he feeds everyone, he sends them away. And then he is able to get his one-on-one -on -one time with the Father. And wedged right in the middle of these very two human attempts to be alone, to be with the Father, to grieve, to contemplate his ministry future, whatever's happening there, to grieve, to mourn, Jesus allows this interruption where his divinity is put on display and he miraculously and compassionately heals everyone that's there and feeds everyone that's there, demonstrating this, the father heart of God, this overwhelming compassion, this overwhelming love for his people and the desire for his people to be taken care of. What's also worth looking at and reasoning why these two texts are linked together, because it feels like a very strange story to be mashed together. Herod's birthday and Jesus' miraculous provision gives us an example of two very different kind of feasts. I don't even have time to go into why feasts were important, but they are. Trust me, you could do some research on that. But we have two very different kind of feasts mashed together, and both compel us to consider from whom and what do we find our ultimate satisfaction. 
And that's the bottom line of what's happening in these 21 verses right here. As this is, yes, it's narrative. Yes, Matthew's moving the story along and and telling us what's happening in the life of Jesus. Yes, there's these very human moments. Yes, people get fed. Yes, there's miraculous power for Jesus to multiply fish and loaves and heal everyone. But at the root of it all, Matthew is chipping out this question of where do you find ultimate satisfaction? In earthly pleasures, provisions, or in Jesus? Do we find our satisfaction in earthly provisions and pleasures, or do we look to Jesus for our satisfaction, trusting that he'll provide for our earthly needs? And that's a big, big moment of trust for the people of God. I think Sherry and I are in a season of life similar to some of you guys in the room where it is difficult to find rest and difficult to to find true satisfaction and fulfillment. We have a couple of small kids, another one on the way. So our house is not super restful all the time because we got kids running around everywhere being crazy. And it's a challenge because the ways in which we're able to find rest and satisfaction before don't work when you have kids or don't work when you live in a new city or a different house. Like enough of our life has changed over the last couple of years where we're in a season of our life. We're trying to figure out what is finding satisfaction really look like in this particular season of life. The things we used to do don't work anymore. And the things that we've tried, like watching Netflix till we fall asleep or, <laughs> you know, eating good food or whatever, they just, they don't satisfy. They don't fill. They're wells that end up running dry after a time. And the easy way out is to find rest or satisfaction in earthly things, right? Is in those Netflix binge moments or is in those whatever it is for you. And they're always easy, but they always let us down. And they always seem to shortchange our our moment of satisfaction. And the, the harder thing, but the better thing, is to seek rest and satisfaction in Jesus, to trust him to provide for us all of our earthly needs. There's this moment. It's a very, very simple and trite example from my own life. But there's a moment where this was like made to a T. It was yesterday. So I was not feeling well yesterday. Somehow allergies have become a part of my life. And I don't know why, but this is a new thing for me. And I'm, I don't know if I'm just a baby about this or if they're really that intense, but it like takes me out. I get the migraines. I get the sinusy thing where I just, my head feels like it's almost about to explode. And just my life is miserable. So like what, so we went to the zoo yesterday and we came home and I was just feeling really junky. And I, so I was taking a nap for a little bit, just trying to rest up while the kids were taking a nap. And, and after the nap, Sherry takes our kids out of the house to just try to get them because they go stir crazy in our house. And I had like, was it an hour, hour and a half on my own? This quiet house. I could do anything I wanted. It was amazing. Now, what did I do? Well, I started by just watching this one quick video on YouTube of this thing that I wanted what happens? An hour and a half later, I'm still in this rabbit hole of YouTube nonsense. And at the end of that, Sherry and the kids come home, and I'm like sitting there, and I'm like, shoot, where the heck did that hour and a half go? I could have read. I could have soaked myself in the words of Jesus. I could have, I could have prayed. I could have sang a little bit. I could have just got, instead, I just, I took the easy way out and just lost myself in watching nonsense videos on YouTube. That's a very easy way to find a moment of rest. But as soon as the kids come walking in, I don't feel very rested anymore. Like I had that rest in that moment and suddenly they're back and I'm like, oh, wait a second. I didn't actually find any satisfaction or rest in that moment. 
It, it felt like a good escape in that time, but it didn't have any lasting effects. Whereas I know personally for me, if I would have taken some time and, and read just a bit of scripture, not, you know, I didn't have to like jam through a bunch of books, but just maybe sat with a few verses, let it ruminate in my mind, where I could have just opened up this book I'm reading and just read some of that. Could have sang a little bit. That's the only time I sing is when no one else is in the house, by the way. I have a terrible voice, so I sing when no one else is around. I could have done all those things, and I chose not to, because they were a little harder. They might have, might have expended a little bit more effort on the front end, but I know from my personal experience they would have had lasting effects on my day. I know it's kind of a trite example, but I think it helps bring a little bit of clarity to what Matthew is, is helping us get out here with these stories of Jesus and what Jesus is doing here. He puts these two very different feasts in contrast next to each other. The ultimate fulfillment of every earthly, human, fleshly pleasure and desire being fulfilled in Herod's birthday party. And this miraculous moment where Jesus supernaturally provides sustenance for those who are following him. And what we'll see in just a little bit, how that directs the people to find their ultimate sustenance and satisfaction and value in himself. So we took a look at Herod's feast. Now I want to look at Jesus' feast and what we learn from that. Jesus saw this great crowd had assembled, and they knew where to get healed. They were following him because they had sick among them, so they flocked to him. Jesus had compassion on them, and verse 14 said he had compassion, and he healed them all. We don't know how many people were there, but it's safe to assume that this was a fairly significant group of people that had whatever diseases, whatever sickness that were going on, he healed them all. And after this half-day messianic medical clinic for hundreds of people, we read in verse 15 that when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. The day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, we only have five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Okay, then what happened? This is the part that we're probably very familiar with if we've read this story before. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds and they all ate and were satisfied and they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over and those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So roughly 20,000 people all satisfied and full to where they had leftovers. Okay, so what's going on here? A lot of us are familiar with this story, like I said, like I've said a couple of times. And I think my encouragement to you is like, don't get lost in its familiarity and take a moment to be in awe of what Jesus just did. This is an incredible thing. Like I know this is like a Bible story we hear about in Sunday school, but this is an incredible moment. There are 20,000 plus people that have followed Jesus to this hillside. They have five loaves of bread. Now, I, I could do all this analysis and study on how big the loaves were. It doesn't matter. There were only five. Insufficient for the amount of people there. And two fish. You can show me the biggest fish you've ever caught. Still not enough to feed 20,000 people. And Jesus miraculously and compassionately provided. He didn't have to. He could have sent them into the towns. Right? They weren't like stranded in the middle of nowhere. They were close enough to where the disciples said, send them to the villages. 
And Jesus said, no, we don't have to do that. Let's try something different. This is a visible, tangible, verifiable, edible sign that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is who he says he is. This is identity proof that Jesus is who he says he is. This is no cheat, no false prophet, false teacher, no magician. More than only the Messiah, that he's God. He supernaturally provides for his people. This miracle screams, this is God in the flesh among us. Who else can do this? This power and authority reveal his identity as the true Messiah. Once again, which is what the whole book of Matthew is all about. And if you miss his messianic identity in this story, we're missing the big point. We're missing the big picture of this story. If we make it just about fishes and loaves only, we're missing the big point of this story. Yes, he feeds the hungry and he heals the sick. He's compassionate and we should be too. That's here, right? That's, that's definitely laid in the story, but that's not all. It's not, it's not the end of the story. And that's not even the point of the story. Here, we see Jesus as the sovereign, powerful Lord of all creation, wielding it to his messianic advantage. He's the one we've been waiting for. This is one more check mark in the mind of everyone hearing and reading Matthew's biography of Jesus, that he is truly the Messiah. Matthew gives us a couple of uh, like Easter eggs, if you will, just some subtleties that would be helpful if you were a first century Jew. None of you are, but this would be really important for those hearing and reading Matthew's account of Jesus. There's some incredible food provision stories in the Old Testament, and the way in which Jesus provides miraculously would have been uh, creating this sense of like historical and spiritual deja vu for everyone in attendance, right? Some of the weird little details that Matthew includes for our benefit, he's actually including for his audience's benefit to say, oh, wait a second, this is, this is strange, desolate place, 12 baskets, fish and loaves. This is all sounding very familiar. I want to take you to two places that every Jew in the crowd would have immediately thought of and said, oh my goodness, something is happening here. This is important. Okay. First one is from Exodus 16 and Numbers 11, right? So God's people, they get rescued out of slavery in Egypt. They're taken into the wilderness where there's no food, desert, no food, no water, and God miraculously provides for them. And so we have these markers in the story of a desolate place, which would have been reminiscent of the nation of Israel wandering in the wilderness after the Exodus, right? That's the, that's the setting, that's the place. Next, we have loaves and fish. It could have been anything, guys. It could have been any morsel of food, but instead it was loaves and fish reminiscent of the manna and meat that God provided the Israelites as they were wandering in the desert. And finally, come on, the most obvious one is the 12 baskets at the end, symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel, as just well as the overabundance of God's provision for his people, right? Just that he not only provides, but he provides an abundance for his people. And what this tells us is that Jesus is the new and better Moses, something Matthew was trying to get at very early on in his gospel. And that's important not only for Matthew's audience, but for us to understand that he is the one who fulfills all these prophetic promises that people have been waiting for for hundreds and thousands of years. 
And so every Jew present would be seeing all of this and going, wait a second, this seems familiar. This is important. This is not your average, you know, supernatural feeding of thousands. There's something unique about this. Another significant food provision story that's echoed here is from the book of 2 Kings, something that we we read just a couple of weeks ago, if you're reading the Bible with us, 2 Kings. And in chapter 4, we have the prophet Elisha. And what we have here is this story of a man bringing the man of God bread of his first fruits. So it's in 2 Kings chapter 4. You don't have to turn there. You can look behind me. Right, so the, the man, bringing the man of God, which would have been Elisha, bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in a sack. And Elisha said, give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? Ooh, only 20 loaves of barley and that's it, before a hundred men. So he repeated, give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. Is this sounding familiar? hope it is. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left, according to the word of the Lord. Okay, so Elisha, the prophet, feeds a hundred men with 20 loaves or 20 bushels of bread. And that's pretty impressive in its own right, but there are several parallels to what's happening in our story today. First, there's a crowd, right? Crowd of a hundred men. Jesus got roughly 5,000 men with their wives and their kids, so approximately 20-some-odd thousand people. There's a crowd. Second, there's a problem. What's the problem? What's the problem? Yeah, they're hungry, and what else? Not enough food, right? Hungry, and they don't have enough food. There's a problem. Third, Elisha says, basically, no problem. Just pass it out anyway. That's all we need. Give it to the men that they would eat. Fourth, the man says in reply, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. We don't have enough for everyone. Do the math. This isn't going to work. And Elisha responds, let God do the math. This will work. Trust me. I'm paraphrasing, guys. Okay, so this is what's happening here. Just let God do the math. You do what I say. Sixth, he does it. And seventh, they all ate. And what? What happens after they eat? They're satisfied and? There's left over. The point of these reachbacks and these parallels to the Old Testament to these miraculous provision stories of God in the Old Testament is to say Jesus is better than that. He's a better Moses, better provider, better teacher. He's a better Elijah, a better prophet. And this is important because every Jew in the crowd would be wondering, is he the better teacher that we've been waiting for? Is he the better prophet that we've been waiting for? Is he the better provider that we've been waiting for? They knew the Messiah would be the fulfillment of all of these leadership roles that Israel had had in the past. And they wanted to know, is he the one we've been waiting for? And what we find in this story is that his identity is affirmed. His humanness, his divinity, his messianic kingship are all here to say, this is God's beloved son. This is the savior of the world. Go after him. Seek him. Be filled by him. Be satisfied in him. Let him provide for your earthly needs. Seek him first. Want him before you want everything else in this world. And watch how he provides for you. That's what we're to see. This is God with us. Do we believe that? This was written so that you and I and Matthew's audience would see and believe that Jesus was the long-awaited, foretold Messiah King, the Savior of the world, the linchpin in history 
changing the world forever. And when the the writer and disciple John, not John the Baptist, the other John, tells this story in his biography of Jesus, in chapter 6, he includes a story that I think is helpful for us as we consider how to respond and how to move forward with our lives after reading this text. And he says, the very next day, right, same story here, he feeds the 5,000, the very next day, Jesus tells the crowd, I am the bread of life. Ah, Jesus sucks the last bit of every analogy possible, right? He takes this all the way to the end. He feeds them with bread and says, I am the real bread of life. I'm the true bread. Let's look at John 6, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. This is right after he miraculously provided for their hunger. It's very, it's supernatural, it's miraculous, but it's temporal. And Jesus says, don't look to bread that won't satisfy. Look to me. And whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. Jesus describes himself as the bread of life, the bread that came down from heaven a little later in that same chapter. And whoever comes to him shall not hunger. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. We are to consider from whom and what do we find our deep, ultimate, true satisfaction from the earthly cares and pleasures like Herod and his cadre of celebrants, or from the king of this upside-down kingdom, claiming to be the bread of life, who provides for his kids, who provides that those that follow him. Jesus wants deeper satisfaction for us than earthly provisions. And even the earthly provisions he doles out, his healings, his feedings, his casting out of demons are all meant to direct people to himself as the source. And to not get all wrapped up in the healing or not get all wrapped up in the feeding or not get wrapped up in the the demon being cast out, but to see him as the one who initiated those things. Say, he is the king and in him I will find my true satisfaction. He generously and graciously provides demonstrating the Father heart of God, but wants us to want Him more than anything else in the world. In Matthew 6, we remember the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God, His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Also in in John 6 is an apt encouragement for you and I today as we consider how to respond. In John 6, 27, He says, do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. So Zach 
and his crew are going to come up and lead us in a bit of response. But I think I want to camp out on just on that one verse, verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. So just like where this lands for us is I think we live uh, in, a, in a particular time and place where it is socially acceptable and encouraged to work for the food that perishes, right? This is, I hope this is not news to you. This is the culture in which we live. Like this is not only accepted, but it's okay. Being busy, working all the time, never having rest, these are ailments of our society. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And in the midst of that, I think these words are quite prophetic for us to say, do not work for food that perishes, for the food that leads to eternal life. Or better said in Matthew chapter 6, seek first his righteousness, his kingdom, and everything will be added. He doesn't neglect us. We're not going to be like just homeless. We're not going to have no money because of that, but to the reordering of priorities that happens in the kingdom of God. Seek first himself. Seek food that leads to eternal life. And so we're going to stand together. Go ahead and stand. I'm going to pray a blessing over you, but just even a moment of like where this can hit home in your hearts and your life. It's just a simple question of are we looking to find our satisfaction in something other than Jesus? And if so, which I imagine is all of us at some point or another this week. So let's just be real here. This was all of us at some point this week, consciously or subconsciously. And this is a moment as we sing together, communion's open, you can go up and, and receive communion anytime any time during the next couple of songs. You can give as an act of worship. Uh, but just even as you're standing, as you're singing, just do a little business with God here and, and analyze your heart. Are, am I looking to something other than Jesus for my satisfaction? Job is not bad. Kids are not bad. Spouse, not bad. Hobbies, surfing, hiking, none of those things are bad, but when they take the place of God in our life, we need to do a little bit of repenting. So just take a moment. Zach's going to play just a little quietly for like a minute and just ask yourself the question, where am I finding that deep satisfaction? Repent, give that to God, confess, and celebrate that we can find true satisfaction in Him. And He graciously and generously provides for our earthly needs. So, Father, would you help us discern these moments in our life when we have let other things creep into your place of giving satisfaction to us? God, would you really be king of our lives? And would we demonstrate that and live that and understand that? Would we seek, as a church, food that does not perish, but food that leads to eternal life? Would we seek you, your kingdom, your righteousness, and trust you to provide everything else? And God, as we rejoice in that, as we are even saddened of how we've seen that in our life, God, would you remind us of the gospel that in you we can find true satisfaction. We are not hopeless. We are not wanderers. This world is not it for us. Would you stir us to see you as king, to see you as the source of true satisfaction. Amen.